Welcome to RVR's Life After Camp podcast. Learn about the camp and retreat ministries of RVR at rivervalleyranch.com. Enjoy. All right, check. We are good. We're golden. We're going to keep going here. So not only are we out of control, but we have this insane desire to pretend like we are in control. And we're constantly doing this over and over again. Taco shared from his heart up here about um, 15 years ago when he was at a camp like this and he made a decision like that. I, I had a similar story. I was invited to go to a Christian camp when I was 15. I'd never been to a Christian camp before. I'd been to basketball camps and stuff like that. And somebody invited me and I didn't want anything to do with God. I was pretty much opposed to the idea. I'd been raised in a home where they talked about God all the time, but I didn't really see any real love in the people who were telling me about God, so I didn't want anything to do with it. And I had, I had been trying to disprove the Bible for several years to no avail. I'd been trying to do that, and this guy invites me to a camp in Tocoa, Georgia, and I was like, no, I don't want to go to church camp with you. And he was like, he, he was just thinking about me, thinking about what I what I preferred and so forth. And so he says, there's a lot of pretty girls at camp from like all over the country. And I was like, when is this camp? Where is this camp? And how much is this camp? How do I sign up for this camp? Sure enough, by like, I, I was from Virginia. I went to this camp in Tocoa, Georgia. By the first day, I'm holding hands with a girl from Florida at service at night, totally not paying attention to the worship music, not paying attention to anything. I'm like, we were going to be together forever or until the buses took us home on Friday. What are the two? And I was excited about that. I was like, yeah. Until Thursday... I hadn't listened to any of the speakers. They had a different speaker every single day. And they're like, oh, Jesus this and Jesus that. And I'm like, oh, come on, spare me. Oh, the hand. <laughs> Thursday, I let go of her hand because I was, <laughs> I was getting so angry that my palms were sweaty, not because I thought this was, girl was cute, but I was so angry at the speaker I could actually hear what he was saying, but I was trying to block it out. There was nothing that I could do about it. He was talking directly to me as if somebody had tipped him off that I was there, and that's exactly what I thought had happened. I thought my youth pastor, the guy that I went with, that he came up to this guy and been like, hey, um, you're speaking Thursday night, like the last night at camp? Okay, here's the thing. We got this kid with us who's kind of a bully. He's always messing with people, making fun of people, fighting could you maybe talk about that? And instead of spending their last night talking about Jesus and how he saves you from your sins, like you're expected church camp, he's talking about bullying, like you're going to town about bullying. And that's not what happened. My youth pastor didn't do that. He didn't go rat me out or anything, but I felt like he was talking to me and it made me angry. And I didn't go back to my dorm that night until 3 a.m. and our curfew was at 11. And I walk in and our, our camp counselor is laying on the floor, laying on the floor, not in his bedroom or anything. We had this little, like, little lounge area in between all the bedrooms in our cabin. And the friend who invited me is laying on the floor. Another dude's laying on the floor, and they're praying out loud for me. Not looking for me. I mean, mind you, I could be dead. It's 3 in the morning. They're camp counselors, if you're missing somebody at 3, stop praying and go looking. God is telling you a message through me right now. You need to find them. Anyways, 
They're praying for me, praying that I'll come to Christ and that I'll, I'll, I'll give up my evil ways and all this stuff, and it just made me angry. I'm like, who do they think they are? See, I had this illusion that I can fix myself, that there's nothing wrong with me anyway, and these people who think that I have to change something in my life, they've got another thing coming. And so I pulled my shoes off, put them under my arms so I'd be as quiet as I could, and I tiptoed to my room, opened the door slightly, pulled it shut, and thought, if they're going to pray for me, they're going to have to do it all stinking night. That's what they get. And I laid in my bed, and I told God something for the last time, the last time I've ever told him this. And I used to do this every, from about age of 13 to the age of 15, two years. I spent every night, I'd hear my brother in the bunk above me praying. And he would do his good night prayer thing. And then I would do my good night prayer thing out loud for my brother. Like, I'm just praying, yeah, God, give us a good night, boom, boom, boom. Because I didn't want my brother to wrap me out to our super religious family and me be the ostracized agnostic. And then I would pray in my head so that God would know that I didn't mean any of the other stuff I just said out loud. And I would say, God, you are not real. That was the last night I did that. At 15... Laying in that bed, I said, God, you are not real. And then a scene played in my mind from when I was in middle school, from the first kid I ever actually saw Jesus in, another bully just like me who had given his life to Christ in an event just like this, and he told me he wasn't going to fight anymore. And I watched him in a hallway between classes take two punches to the face from a kid he could have taken easily. This was a 210-pound kid in the seventh grade, my friend Matt. And he stood down to a kid who hit him in the face twice that we always used to mess with. And he's just dancing around him. What do you got, Matt? What do you got? And Matt said, I know Jesus. I won't fight you. And I'm watching this go down thinking that's the wrong answer. And he gets punched in the face and he says, I told you I won't fight you. And it happens again. And I ended up on the ground with this kid. I ran over, jumped him. We got on the ground. I remembered I was the mouth, not the muscle. Everybody else is saying, welcome to the gun show. I'm like, welcome to the ramen noodle festival. I'm not built for this. And I'm on the ground fighting this kid. And we end up pushing off. And he goes another way. And I talk to Matt. I'm like, what was that, man? You just totally let me get beat right there. And he said, I, I know you heard me when I just said that I am following Jesus because I saw you out of the corner of my eye. And I know you heard me a couple weeks ago when I told you I gave my life to Jesus. Well, I meant it. And he turns and he walks out and I just cussed him out. I said everything I could possibly think of. Picked on his parents about their money, about the way his mom looked, everything I could think of to get him to turn around and he wouldn't turn around. It was infuriating to me. And when I said for the last night when I was 15 in that little bunk in that cabin in Tocoa, Georgia, I said, God, you are not real. God didn't say this out loud to me. But when that scene played in my head, that memory popped back up to the forefront of my mind. I felt like God was saying, you have already seen me. And he wasn't bearded or with sandals or long hair or anything like you'd expect. He was a, a 210-pound, kind of overweight but pretty stocky seventh-grade kid who stood down to a fight, who did something that wasn't natural, who did something in the supernatural, and it blew my mind. And that is the night where I decided after saying that. And, and here's, the, here's the weird thing about telling God he's not real. If you really think somebody's fictional, you don't talk to them. 
I'm not like super angry at the tooth fairy. Like, seriously, dude? Everyone else was getting five bucks. Why is there a quarter under my pillow? I mean, like, I, I'm not, dude, I don't even know if it's a guy or girl. The movies have confused me. Anyways, you don't talk to fictional beings. And it was that night that I gave up my power struggle, this illusion that I somehow could control my life because I couldn't. Where I'd gotten extremely angry at God started when I was 13 because my grandfather died and God wouldn't bring him back from the dead. He did it a ton of times in here for a ton of different people. Why not my grandpa? That's when I went the complete opposite way and said, hey, you're not real, and kept telling him he wasn't real, full well knowing in my heart that I was angry at him. And if I'm angry at him, he has to exist in order for me to have those angry conversations. And so I don't know where you're at in that power struggle, but we all go through it. We either decide to surrender and to say, I can't do this on my own. If I was to just like strain, just strain and say like, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to live forever. Live forever. I might get an aneurysm and die trying to live forever, but I'm not going to live forever because I want to because I don't have the power to do that. I can't get rid of my sin, restore my relationship with my creator. I can't do any of that stuff on my own. I got to stop kidding myself that I can because I can't. We're coming up on our 20th year high school reunion this October. Yeah, I'm old. Anyway, so I go into this 20th reunion. We had one five years ago, and I ran into a friend that I hadn't seen since high school. Went on missions trips with me after I gave my life to Christ that night. His parents taught me Sunday school when I was a little kid. That's like small groups on Sunday with like boards with sticky people that they stuck on it to tell you Bible stories. I'm like, I was sure this kid was a follower of Jesus, and I'm like, David, what are you doing now? And I told him I'm a pastor and everything. We get into this conversation, and he's like, hey, let me stop you right there. I'm not a Christian anymore. Like, I, maybe I never was. And I'm like, whoa, what, what, what? Like, it never crossed my mind that my friend David, who I hadn't talked to in 15 years, wasn't a believer. I just assumed he was, and I asked him about it. Like, re really, are, are you sure? Like, what, what, how did you come to that conclusion? And he gave me a bunch of stuff, a bunch of reasons why and stuff. But finally, he said, look, here's the thing. I'm a high school teacher. I coach football. I don't mess with anybody. I'm helping kids. I'm a good dude. And if, when I die, I end up standing before God, and he's actually real, and I show up there, I've been a pretty good person, and that's going to have to be good enough for him. And I'm racking my brain of what to say to my friend. I want to say, no, 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 that's not the way it works. That's not how it's set up. But I just said, I found myself opening my mouth and saying, you know what, that will be good enough for God. And then his mouth drops. <laughs> like, what? This pastor guy is telling me this? I said to him, that will be good enough for God if you're the one who makes the rules. Are you? He said, no, I'm not. And I said, you may want to find out who does. Because it's extremely important in this society where we're like, you speak your truth, my truth is different, and we, we talk about this stuff all the time as if we, if we think a certain way, then all of a sudden that will be the new truth. We didn't start this game of life. 
we didn't write out the instructions or the rules, and we might want to find out who does. And that power struggle that we constantly have with God, we can't win that. It's an arm wrestling match that you're not going to walk away from. He's already set up the rules, and his rules are, just like we talked last night, the payment for sin is death. That's the rules. But the love of God comes screaming and saying, I'll die for you instead, which is so awesome. So we're going to look at two quick stories tonight in the Bible that have to do with two different people, two different groups of people who had power struggles with God. One of them made the wrong decision, and some of them made the right decision. So this is all the way back in Exodus. Have you guys heard of Moses? If you've heard of Moses, raise your hand. All right. So that's most of you. Okay, Moses was the guy who started the, like, he, he is the guy who pulled the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and went to where Israel is right now, all right? So um, he went to Israel with all of these Jewish guys, and they went there. On the way, they're, like, totally running out of food, and they start praying about this. And God miraculously feeds them because he wants them to know that he's their provider, so every morning they wake up and there's like this white fluffy stuff called manna that's like bread from heaven. And it's like laying there. Instead of dew and wet grass, they're like, bread, this is weird. Can you imagine if you went outside and you're like, what is this? Oh, my goodness. Turn on the hot now sign. Krispy Kreme. You know, you're like excited about it. Yeah! Who cares that it's been laying in the grass, you know? So they're getting all this manna off the ground every day and they're eating it. And you would think they'd be excited about that, and occasionally they'd come across a spring and they'd drink some water and stuff. But they start getting really, really angry. Be like, instead of like, God's providing bread, they're like, where's my water? We haven't had water for a while, Moses. We've been walking. My feet are killing me, Moses. I feel like we're walking in circles, Moses, Moses, Moses. And they start complaining to Moses, and Moses is like, God, oh, my goodness. These people want water. They're getting on my nerves. Can you do something? So God says in Exodus 17, 6, he tells Moses to go to a rock, not the rock, Dwayne Johnson wasn't born yet, uh, or Kid Rock or any other rocks out. Anyway, so he goes over to this rock, and here's what God says, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock with his staff, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Okay. That's weird. Now, Moses had to go out on faith a little bit because if, he, if he's like, attention, people, clack, clack, and nothing happens, they're like, what? And he's like, nothing. I just wanted to see if you were awake, you know? So he goes out on faith. He pulls the people around, and he says, attention, people, and he goes, clack, clack, and water starts coming out of a rock, which is a weird experience. You're just like, what? The, wa- the rock just kind of opens up, and water starts gushing out of it like it's this water fountain that had always been there. And people are like, whoa, this is like the best water I've ever had. This rocks. Anyways. (laughs) Oh, I'm so sorry. Anyways. So he does that. Somebody in the back, thank you for that. That wonderful clap. So they leave after this. They don't just stay by the rock. God tells them to keep moving, get to the next area where you're supposed to go. And then all of a sudden, they're still eating the bread and every day. And they remember the rock. The rock was great. We can't go back to the rock. We're too far away from the rock now. And they're like, no, we're so thirsty, Moses. Aren't they need rocks for you to beat, Moses? We need, some, we need some water. And they hadn't really been thankful. They were never like, oh, God's so awesome. Remember the rock? 
No, they were just like completely ungrateful. And Moses is kind of ticked off about it. And so in Numbers 20, we get somewhat of the same story again, but a little bit different. It says, in the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived in the desert of Zin. That already sounds like you need water. Anyways, they're in the desert of Zin. And they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam, that's his, that's his sister, by the way, died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community. So they're coming to ask Moses for water after his sister dies. Don't bother people at funerals. You know, like, don't bother, like, we're out of potato salad. My sister's dead. You know, anyway, so, like, they come up to him. There was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They're having a little protest. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Like, all the other people who have died in the wilderness, that should have been us, because this thirst is killing me, bro. And so he says, why did you bring, they say, why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you even bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain, it has no figs, it has no grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no stinking, it doesn't say stinking, but there's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron, Aaron's his brother, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell down. That's like the old town meeting hall back then. And they fell down, face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron and gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You'll bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So this is pretty much going the same way except a slight direction change. God's like, okay, here's another rock, dude. Oh, it's another rock, sorry. It's another rock, dude. I want you to take your staff, take your brother, gather everybody again, and I want you to speak to the rock this time. Hello. Any water for the people? Anyways, I don't know what he's supposed to say, but he's supposed to speak to this rock, but he has his staff with him. And he's got a choice to make. And he's angry at the people. It says, so Moses, Moses took the staff in the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels. Must we bring water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. He's like, listen, you ingrates. Ah, ah, do we have to bring water out of this rock for you? I mean, he's, 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 he's kind of gone off his rocker here. To the people, oh, I didn't even mean to do that. Oh, thank you. Anyways, I really didn't mean to do that. I meant he's like gone crazy. But anyways, rock, rocker, it works. It works on several levels. No. Anyways, so he hits this rock, and he's like, do we have to bring water out of this rock for you? And God could have said, uh-uh, dude, not till you speak to it. But the reason he gathered them there in the first place was to provide for his people. It wasn't about Moses. It was about God providing for his people. And it says, water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. 
Even though Moses disobeyed, the same thing happened. Even though Moses took credit for it, must we bring water out of this rock? Instead of like, are you, are you doing this to God again? Because God is merciful and he wants to give you water, but you people are ungrateful. Clack, clack. He doesn't do that. He takes credit for it. Do we, me and Aaron, have to give you water again? You bunch of ingrates, and he smacks the rock. And God still provides for his people. And the community drank and their livestock drank. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of Israel, you will not bring this, com- this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy. Holy means set apart among them. Moses had been called to take these people into the promised land, and he never got to do it. That was his punishment. He wasn't able to continue with them. Now, he led them all the way to it. God let him go up to this mountain before Moses passed away as an old man. He looked over. He saw the land that he could have walked into, but he couldn't because he was the representative of God to the people. And he had this power struggle where it made it, he made himself look like he was the one in charge when it was all about God and what God wanted him to do. So he went the wrong way with it like we do a lot of times. But this other passage, we've got, this is, this is so cool. It's in John chapter 21. This is after Jesus dies on the cross, after he raises from the dead, before he goes back to heaven, he appears to his disciples several times. Like he'll just walk in to locked rooms and stuff because now he's like not in a normal human body anymore. He's like in a heavenly body. He just like walks through the wall. Hey guys, ah, you know, like he, he did several things like they didn't scream. They thought it was cool. I would have thought it was cool too. But in chapter 21 of the book of John, it says afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter Thomas, also known as Didymus, remember I mentioned him yesterday, the twin guy, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When Jesus first met these guys, he asked them to follow him and he would make them fishers of men. Now, they didn't put hooks in people's face, <laughs> you know, like that. But they were going out to tell people and get people to come follow Jesus. And they, they, they went back after Jesus died on the cross, even though he had risen from the dead. Now they're going back to their old profession, even though God has called them to do something different. In the Old Testament, there's a similar story where a prophet asks another guy to follow him. And this guy goes and he kills the two Ox, oxen that are pulling his cart when he plows the fields, cuts it up and cooks steaks for the entire village. So he has no more ox to go back to, all right? No more plowing. Then he burns, he burns the plow as well to actually start the fire so that he could cook the meat so he could feed the whole village. He, he like burned all ties. His name was Elisha, burned all ties with what he could go back to. But the disciples didn't. They still had their fishing gear. And they find themselves back out, and they're out there all night long. Anybody fish in here? All right, so if you're fishing at night, which is a great time to fish, especially on the Sea of Galilee, you're going to catch a lot of stuff, and it's going to be cool. And, and the reason they had to fish at night a lot was because they used nets. And during the day, 
the fish could see the nets. You know, it's like, I'm not going in there. And they'd catch a few during the day, but at night, the fish just swam right into them like morons. And they're like, what is happening? And you get the fish. And they've been doing this all night. And they've got literally nothing. They're professional fishermen who should be good at this. And they had nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Now, if you're doing something that you're good at and somebody else comes along and tries to give you advice about that, you're like, have you tried holding the foosball thing with your left hand, but turn it this way? You're like, I know what I'm doing. I'm a foosball king. You know, like... You don't want people telling you how to do stuff you're good at. These are professionals, professional fishermen. And there's some random guy on the shore who's like, hey, friends, haven't you any fish? He's like rubbing it in. Like, what's going on? Now we don't have <laughs> row to the shore. Let's kill him. And he's like, I mean, like, there's just a guy there. They don't know it's Jesus. Their answer is no. <laughs> no. So he yells out. Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. Okay, that's not the way boating works. The boat floats on the water. It doesn't go to the bottom of the lake. So fish swim under it. That's what I'm thinking if I'm a fisherman and somebody tries to give me advice like that. Oh, yeah, the fish are on the right side of the boat. You're totally on the wrong side of the boat. They could never swim over there. I'm not going to listen to that guy. Can you, can you imagine you're just out fishing? I don't even know if you can see my fishing pole from there, but it's, it's awesome and, and made of foam. Anyway, so you're like, you're just fishing. I've got a bag attached to it for reasons you don't know yet. Anyways, so you're just fishing, and somebody's like, dude, you're sitting on the dock wrong. The fish aren't on that side. You've got to, like, totally put it over here. That's where the fish are, and you're like... There's water under the dock, and fish can swim. If I just wait right here, the fish can get to me. But these guys don't do that. There must have been something about the way that Jesus said this to them, not even realizing it was Jesus. They did what he said. Maybe it's to shut the guy up who's on the shore trying to give them advice. Like, really? You think so? Well, ba-bloom, no fish. You know, like, I mean, that's maybe what they're thinking. But part of them is probably like, you know what? What have we got to lose? And they put their nets in the other side. And it says, when they, were, when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. It's like they put the nets in the side where the fish should have been able to find anyway. And fish are like coming suicidally running at this net. Like, Aah! and the fish is just, they're just jumping into it. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, that's always how John referred to himself because he recognized who we are when we really know who Jesus is, that we're all loved by God. And he said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he had taken it off, probably to try to pull in this thing of nets. I'm not why, sure why he would put on another garment to swim. Anyway, so... He put this on, he had taken it off, and jumped into the water, and the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, because they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. He's swimming 100 yards towards Jesus, while his friends are like, thanks, Peter, pulling this net and trying to row the boat at the same time, so that they, because they can't lift it. There's too many fish in there. When they landed, 
They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. It's like Jesus did this miracle in such a cool way that a fish even got onto the shore where Jesus was like, cook me. You know what I mean? Like, it's already there. And he's cooking this stuff right in front of them. And he's already got some bread available to them too. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. So he had just swam 100 yards. The boat gets in probably around the same time because boats are faster than people. And and then he has to like go, oh, yeah, the fish. And so he goes and he helps them drag this net to the shore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. They're telling us this because normally if you had these huge fish like this, their, their nets would tear or some of them would get away. But God was keeping all of this together, and there were 153. And I did a ton of research into why 153. What's the significance of that number? And the significance is nobody knows. Anyway, so it's just 153 fish, and, and, and it's letting us know there were a lot. And the cool thing about there being 153 is it meant that they, they were so impressed by it that they took time to count the fish individually. Like one Whoa, two, look at the size of this one. Sketch me, because they didn't have cameras. <laughs> Sketch me, you know, like, they pull it out. and they, That's how they did fish photos back then. They're like drawing and like, no, make the fish bigger. Make me smaller. Make my bicep bigger though, but me smaller and the fish big. You're doing it wrong. Let me draw myself. You know, like, they're, call, they're counting all these five, six. They get all the way up there, 151, 152, 153. And they're so impressed by this. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him who he was because now they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And it's so easy for us when we feel like Jesus is calling us, when we feel like, you know what, that's just like I felt in that camp when I got in my room alone with God and I started talking to him and it wasn't like Taco. Taco experienced it during worship and surrendered to God and I, God really had to do a number on me to get my attention. But when I finally did, it's like, whoa, This God is really, really good. And when his disciples were in that boat, and they decided to take that from one side, kind of bring it over to the other, and they just pull out these big, giant, honking fish, they're like, what is going on here? You know, that, it really showed them who God was. That although they thought they were in control and that they had a handle on this because that was, the, that was the thing in the world, the one thing in the world that they were really, really, really good at. And you can insert whatever you can into there of something that you're really good at, that you're confident in. And we feel like we have control of that thing. And so we kind of dwell on that. We're like, well, at least I'm really good at this sport. I'm really good at this video game or I'm really good at this or making friends or whatever that is. And we try to push away the other stuff. But then when everything comes collapsing down, when we start realizing that we're really not as in control as we think we are, that's when God tries to get our attention and says, you're not in control, but you're pretending like you're in control and it doesn't work. I really am. 
And just like I told you yesterday, I think it was yesterday, it might have been the day before. It was yesterday. When he put that tree in the garden, when he put his son on that cross fashioned from a tree, he's giving us that eternal option of opting out or opting in, of having a relationship with God or not having a relationship with God, of choosing to remain inside an illusion of strength that doesn't really exist, to pretend like we're in charge when we can't add one day to our life by thinking about it. That video that we watched yesterday that didn't work this morning of Louis Giglio, when you think how small we are in the grand scheme of things, really blows my mind that God cares about us anyway. That in all of that, he says, you are important enough for me to die for. And I honestly believe if you were the only person that exists and you didn't have a relationship with God, that he would still come out of heaven, go to a cross for you so he could remove this barrier between you and him called sin that warning label that's on your life, and peel that back and say, I want to give this person my peace. I want to give them my joy. I want to give them my love. I want them to experience my mercy. I want them to experience my grace. And a lot of times we think, you guys know what grace is, by the way? Anybody know a definition for grace? Yell it out if you know it. What is it? Yeah, mercy's not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Does that make sense? So, you, yeah, so they sound similar, but like if I deserved something and somebody's like, okay, I'm going to give you mercy, you're not going to have to get that. That's different than grace. Grace is giving you something entirely. So mercy would be like God saying, okay, you don't have to be separated from me for eternity. You don't have to do that, and you're just going to stay here on this imperfect planet. But grace goes beyond that. It gives us this gift. It gives us eternal life. It gives us a relationship with God that starts now and, and lasts all the way into heaven and lasts forever, which is really cool. Now, here's the thing about grace that people forget. It's, it's, a, it's an undeserved gift. And so many times people are like, well, I want Jesus and I want forgiven and stuff, but I feel like I have to do this and this and this or I have to clean myself up first or I have to sweep the floor first in my heart. I got to get it ready for it. Look, if you have to do anything, anything, if you have to pay anything, it's not a free gift. I can't say I've got a free gift for you. What's your name right here? Chris. I can't say, Chris, I've got a free gift for you. And you reach out for it. I'm like, that'll be $5. Chris is going to be like, yeah, that's not a free gift. If you have to work your way to Jesus, then you don't understand grace. There's no amount of work we could do to establish a relationship with Jesus. Here's, here's an illustration you might get, maybe. Maybe the girls won't, but the guys, you're going to totally get this. Girls, you could imagine. This is my seventh camp this summer, and there are times where I've had to step into one of the dorm areas where the guys are. It's like a punch in the face. Sorry, guys. I'm sorry. There's a lot of BO going on in those rooms, and they seal the door during the day, and it's trapped. And here's what I found that guys think can, can solve it. Axe body spray. And so they spray this, and they just go into town, just spraying this, and all the different, everybody's got a different fragrance of it, and it's all a cloud of haze, and they're like, I don't have time for a shower, but I have time for this. 
And here's what I smell when I walk into those rooms. I smell funky, nasty, B.O., and Axe. And it doesn't mix well together. Dinner tonight was beast. It was awesome. But I have been burping earlier back there and back here, and it doesn't smell as good as it did the first time. It's just like coming up because the, I don't know, anyway, you didn't want to know that. Anyways, I was trying to get a whiff of it at first, like, oh, good, dinner, second, oh, no, not second dinner. When you walk into those rooms and you smell both, you realize that the first thing did not actually, or the second thing did not actually cover the first. It didn't work. We tried to make it work. You can still smell both. But sometimes we think, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do some good, and my good is going to outweigh the, my sin. If there was one sin, you can never do enough to cover it. It's still going to be there. Both scents are going to be able to be picked up. And God wants to look at us and say, you know, you're not going to be able to do any of that. Just stop trying. I've already done everything possible for you to have a relationship with me. You don't have to pay for your own sins. My son already did it. All you have to do is freely accept that. And I want to close with these two verses in the book of Isaiah. It talks about the relationship with God that we start in Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. And I think it's on the screen too. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself is the rock eternal. He's not going anywhere. He doesn't shift like everybody else does, and our opinions change and everything else. God is always the same. He's always steadfast. His love for you is never, ever shaken. And that's the God who says, you know what? I'll erase it all. I'll clean it all off. Everything you've done will start fresh as if nothing had ever happened. I'm not going to spray something over it. Suck. That's what I'm not out of it until there's nothing left. <laughs> no air. Then I'm going to pump it with fresh oxygen. That's what I'm going to do. That's what he does in our life. That's what he does in our heart. And he makes us completely new every single time. If I was in middle school right now and I was looking through this room, I would start picking out different things that I could make fun of about each of you, about your physical appearance, about the way you talk, whatever it is. I'd be sizing you up so that I could make myself look better when we get in conversations or when I say something rude to you. But I'm telling you right now, however many years later it is, a lot, 23 years later, I'm standing in front of you knowing full well that I couldn't do it anymore, that I've lost that ability because I don't see that anymore. I see unique masterpieces fashioned by God to be exactly who you are. And I would hate to go into, I would hate to go into a museum and see this awesome picture and be like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen, and walk to the next one and it'd be the same one through every single hall in that museum. I would hate to do that because it would take away from the uniqueness and the perfection of the first one. And that's what you are. You're masterpieces of God that he desires to use for awesome purposes. So much so that he paid the ultimate price and gave his life for you so that you could be new in him. Let me pray for you tonight. God, I thank you so much for these students. Lord, for those who have yet to make a decision for you, God, you love them just as much as those who have. 
God, you paid the ultimate price for us. You are an awesome God. It's like you really, just like the song we sang earlier, God, it's like you grabbed death and pinned him to the ground and handcuffed him and carried him off. You took away the effects of sin, the effects of death for us. You arrested death for us so that we could be made new and step into eternal life. So, Lord, I pray that you would be with us, God, in our, in our cabin times, in our small group devotions, and all the different breakouts we have, like in the morning, God, all of that stuff, Lord, that we would be able to focus on you. We'd be able to see the beauty of your creation as we go throughout River Valley Ranch, and we would know overwhelmingly so much about us. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Live After Camp episode. Discover all of the year-round adventures at RVR and find out how you can support our ministry at rivervalleyranch.com. Thanks.